Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Say civil rights, and many think last century, which is fair. We are, after all, in the year 2024. But that framing diminishes how recently 1960s American civil rights efforts were underway and how hard won its battles were. Just 60 years ago, black Americans like Mae Bertha and Matthew Carter had to fight to claim their children's legal right to attend the schools they wanted and where the Carter children could get the same education as white students in Drew, Mississippi. St. Louis University professor and speech-language pathologist Dr. Travis Threats is a direct result of those efforts, and he joins us today to talk with us about what his grandparents endured and envisioned and how it affects his own work today. Dr. Threats, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So let's talk about law and reality. You know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed segregation of public spaces, including schools, in the U.S., so your grandparents, Matthew and May Bertha Carter, enrolled seven of their children into white schools in 1965. This may seem like a question with an obvious answer, Dr. Threats, but why did your family have to fight so hard and endure so much? That's because the response to the officials in Mississippi was to tell people uh, have freedom of choice papers meaning they would ask the black students, uh, black parents rather, whether they wanted their children in these integrated schools. And their idea was if they say no, they could tell the federal government, we gave them a choice and they all said no. Mm -hmm. Thus the schools will remain segregated. Okay. And with your grandparents then, they wanted their children to go to schools that were all white children, right? Well, the goal wasn't all white children. Actually, the goal was to not get, they literally got the hand-me-down books, like secondhand books that had been written in, torn, in disrepair, pages missing, mm -hmm. uh, a school that was in disrepair, uh, no bus service. So it wasn't, uh, the goal wasn't, we want to go to school with white people. We want to go to a better school. Right. And what are the specifics of what they had to endure as they were waging this this fight for their kids. Okay. Well, first you have to get a short history of slavery to sharecropping. So my mother is the oldest of 13, and they were sharecroppers. Sharecroppers theoretically, like the theoretical freedom <laughs> of choice papers, theoretically meant that you worked the land, and at the end of the year they would they would see what the total cost of your harvest was, and then you would get that money. Mm -hmm. So you don't own the land, but it's literally called sharecropping. So it does have a very equitable name, right? Sure, sure. We're going to share. Yeah. <laughs> but at the end, you, um, you couldn't go to see what the products sold for, in this case, cotton. And they would tell you that you came up short because that whole year you have been accumulating debt, meaning my mother was in a shack with 
dirt floors, no windows, but they're paying rent. Mm -hmm. The store is owned by the same family. So this whole year you're going into debt, and then at the end of the year you come up short. Now, this is despite the fact that my mother started picking cotton at age nine for $1.50 a day, mm-hmm. theoretically. Yeah. So as a result, you were legally bound. It was an extension of slavery, meaning if you tried to leave, you're squashing on your debts and you, you can't leave. So they were on a plantation. So when they presented them with these papers, the idea was, well, you're not going to go against the person that you know, rules everything. And for the most part, they were right because of all of Sunflower County, my uh, uh, grandparents were the only ones to sign the papers. Mm -hmm. So um, as a result, uh, they did sign them and everybody was shocked that they showed up. And then the next day, the owner of the plantation came and told my grandfather to disenroll the kids out of the school. Mm -hmm. So he presented him with another quote-unquote choice. Yeah, the choice, well, it was, you shouldn't do this. Right, right. Uh, Later on, not that many days afterwards, their house was shot up. uh, And then all sorts of things happened to try to dissuade them from joining the school. And then, of course, when they joined the school, they were mistreated by not just the students, but by the teachers and the principals. Mm -hmm. No. Your parents, or your, your grandparents then, I mean, they had to have been very convinced that education was something that their children should have, mm-hmm. especially facing all of that. Your grandmother, Mae Bertha Carter, she shared her and her family's experiences of navigating Mississippi school systems and facing not just potential, but as you've mentioned, you know, real violence from white community members in a 1996 book called Silver Rights. But it was both your grandparents who were up against serious adversity and danger because they wanted their children to be able to exercise their freedom of choice uh, the way that Mississippi said that they had. Mm -hmm. Is there one particular story, Dr. Threats, that you heard as a child about what was going on, you know, in your grandfather Matthew's mind as he and your grandmother waged that education choice fight? They knew that it was for a greater cause, and the greater cause was not just their children, but all children and their right to get a superior education. So I was directly told story. My grandmother it gets the most attention. She was the most talkative. Okay, sure. <laughs> My grandfather was not very talkative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she told me about the struggles and the fact that she never went to a real school. She went to a school run by a church only up till third grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was very bright. Both of my grandparents were very bright. But how important that is. And she had a, a more enlightened view of education than many people. She always said that you don't get an education just to get a job. You get an education so you don't believe anything that anybody tells you. Mm. So it was to be a learned person, to know how to look up when politicians say something, to look it up yourself and see whether it's true or not. That was the purpose of being learned. And he said, and if you don't have education, then you don't have anything to counter what people tell you. Mm -hmm. So that's why it was important. She was talking about developing them as people, developing them as citizens. Was there any point in in your youth at which 
you sort of you realize the magnitude of what your grandparents fought for, you know, what they wanted. Sort of a moment of, oh, this is what they were doing. It's not just stories that we're we're sort of handing around at the family. Well, I probably, not until I was older, fully realized that I was younger than they were at the time, most of them. Um, so I knew that they, sometime one of the summers, they came and stayed with us because things were so stressful uh, there. So I did know about it all the time. And every time I went down in the, uh, went down in the summers to visit again, we, we knew of the... I knew of the story. So I didn't mm-hmm. know all the way, but I guess I probably wasn't, it was until I was older that I understood the full historical context, mm-hmm. meaning I understood what was happening to them. Right. I did not understand it in, as part of a larger movement. Mm-hmm. Was there ever any pressure that you felt to do well in school because of that history? Well, I wouldn't use the word pressure. It has kind of a pejorative sure, uh, sure. connotation to it. I would say responsibility. Mm-hmm. So by being told uh, all of this, I, I'm certainly not going to squander an education that, that is not so stressful and hard for me. And uh, my college was rife with drugs, LSD, marijuana, cocaine, everything. Uh, I didn't partake in any of those things because I, I'm not going to mess up what my family has fought for me to get. So mm-hmm. they fought for me to get here, and then I'm going to flunk out on my own stupid behavior? <laughs> no. So that sense of responsibility and um, the efforts that people have put forward to have me, then by this time I understood the larger uh, connotations. Look at the efforts that people, people have been killed, people have been harmed over me being able to go to school, mm-hmm. so how can you how can you squander uh, when so many have gone? And it wasn't an abstract thing for me. My own right. family mm-hmm. had done this, so how could I disappoint my family, being given this and then then not take advantage of it? Yeah, we're talking today with Dr. Travis Threats, who's professor and chair of St. Louis University's Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences, and we're talking today about the legacy of his grandparents and their fight to ensure that their children could get the education they deserved, uh, which at that time was the same education that white children were getting. And that fight took place in Drew, Mississippi. Dr. Threats, you were recently on our program, and you came to talk about diversifying the field of speech-language pathology, and you had noted the classist and racist origins of the field. And our, our promos for this segment say it took three generations of activism for you to be where you are, Dr. Threats, as the second-ever black professor at SLU to rise to full professorship through the school's ranks. And you are also the chair of St. Louis University's Department of Speech-Language and Hearing Sciences. I mean, would you say that your own journey has, in fact, been activist in a way that carries forward the, the legacy of your grandparents' work? I would say very much. It's actually involved directly in my work. My work is with the World Health Organization and Disability Rights, 
because people with disabilities are also discriminated against. Mm -hmm. So we're part of a larger issue of people who are kept from their full realization of how they want to live their life Mm -hmm. by other people's attitudes, by laws, by restriction. So even though uh, my work has not been directly with civil rights as they did it, it still still informs the person I am, Mm -hmm. and that is we should all be looking for uh, inclusion of all people. Mm -hmm. And was your decision to go into the field that you're in now at all influenced by um, what you saw was missing insofar as equity goes? Oh, well, my younger brother, three years younger, is autistic. And I saw firsthand the racist and classist and elitist attitudes of all the health professionals toward my parents. So this is at a personal level. Now, it's not at that shooting up your house level. It's not at that level, Mm -hmm. but clearly attitudinally, uh, the social workers and the speech language pathologists and all that clearly did not listen and respect what my parents were telling them. They were trying to tell them about my brother and what was going on, and they had their education in their mind, and they are this, and it was wrong. So I was influenced to go into speech language pathology because I thought, this seems like a very important field, but, you know, like the wrong people are going into it. Mm-hmm. These people have no understanding of the lived lives of people with disabilities and their families. Yeah. But it's that same kind of power. One group has power of the other. One group wants to restrict the other. One group doesn't respect the, uh, the opinions of another person. So to me, these are all the same thing. Yeah. So my work has been with um, uh, respecting people with disabilities, and communication disabilities are especially uh, discriminated against because as soon as people talk, people make judgments about them. And is that something that you have experienced personally? Well, the, the, um, the whole manner in which how people interact is, is uh, that. So I definitely felt that uh, not only is the field only 8% um, all minorities combined, it also is a majority female field. Mm-hmm. So like in all things, those people in power want to maintain the personality and yeah. that. So I felt discrimination as a male because the, in this particular setting, the power is with the majority mm-hmm. and the majority are female. Right. So I was told that I did therapy with children wrong. I oh. talk to children wrong. Okay. Uh, they would say things like, you have a very adult way with children, don't you? Not that the child was complaining. Right, Not right. that the parents were complaining. Yeah. But again, every person in power has a culture, and they want everybody to be like them. And if anybody is different than them, they, uh, they try to squash that behavior. Yeah. So do the students who come through St. Louis University, do they know about this background that you have is there maybe something in your office? It could be a copy of your, your grandmother's book. Uh, both books, uh, the Civil Rights and the Children's Book, The School is Not White, mm-hmm. a picture of my grandparents and the aunts and uncles. Well, my grandfather had died by the time. My grandmother and my aunts and uncles, picture of them with uh, uh, President Clinton, who had given them all an award. Mm-hmm. So there's things in my office. But I don't think the typical student 
knows my full background. Some of them will know it just from yes, listening to the show will. today. <laughs> now, they know my work with uh, uh, disabilities and, uh, and respect for people, disabilities, and uh, ensuring that the environment is uh, helpful to them, yeah. that you don't just treat the disability as something that they have to get over, that mm-hmm. we morally have a responsibility to treat them well. So that part they know very strongly, but yeah. they probably don't know my personal mm-hmm. story. There is a saying within the black community that encapsulates the pain that elders endured, the power they fought for, and their hopes and aspirations for the future, and that is, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. Before your grandmother passed in 1999, did you talk with her, Dr. Threats, about what you wanted to do in your career or with your life, and did she ever give any indication or impression that she knew that you would be a doctor, a professor, and a leader in your field? To my uh, grandmother, me getting a PhD was much more important than, let's say, I had a business and became wealthy. Um, so much, So she talked to me about it, and in fact, after I got my PhD, in almost every speech she gave afterwards, she said, and my grandson, I was a sharecropper, I only went to third grade and a church school, and my grandson has a PhD. Mm-hmm. She used that in every speech. Yeah. How did that feel? <laughs> well, I, I felt very happy to, uh, to have fulfilled her dreams because this is probably further than she thought would happen in just two generations. Mm-hmm. I mean, my aunts and uncles who went through this all went on to college and all went on to successful careers. Right. Um, but um, the, I was the only PhD in the family. Mm-hmm. So as a concluding question here, you know, there's a lot of discussion about trauma and how it is something that, um, you know, that informs the way that we make decisions about doing things. There's also triumph, which I think you're sitting here and talking mm-hmm. with me the way mm-hmm. that you are is part of it. What part of the, the work or the travail um, maybe gets missed out on when we focus too much on, on trauma and, and triumph, that stuff in between? What is important about that? Well, first of all, uh, it's a myth that everyone triumphs through trauma. So uh, it's, and, and my grandparents, you know, when they shot up the house, they could have been killed. Uh, so... Um, Let's not say, let's not be naive and say that you always uh, triumph over a system. Many people came before the 60s. I mean, this wasn't, this didn't happen overnight. So, but here's the thing. You have to be willing to work towards something that's greater than yourself that you may not even see happen. We all need to be working toward that. So, yes, we do have triumph, but even though my uh, aunts and uncles triumphed, they still carry with them the scars of what happened to them when they were younger. Mm-hmm. So it's you, they, they work through it, but it's not like well, if you succeed, then it, all that didn't matter. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you.
This episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.